Welcome to another episode of The Business of Freelancing. On today's episode, we talk with the panel about growing your business, scaling, hiring a team, and climbing the value chain. On today's episode of The Business of Freelancing, we're joined by Eric. Hi, everybody. Mark. Hello. Meg. Hey. And I'm your host, Kai Davis. So when you're, when you're an employed freelancer, when you're a profitable freelancer, sooner or later, if you keep just raising your hourly rate, eventually it won't work. Clients push back. They say, hey, you know what? I really don't want to spend you know $400 an hour on somebody to copy-paste my emails into MailChimp for me. But when you start hitting those rate caps, I guess, what are the paths left to grow? What, uh, what options are there? And I think we each have a different experience with how we've overcome those sort of rate caps or those barriers. So I think an interesting point to start on here will just be how we've approached this in the past. Mark, I know you've grown an agency in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience there and how you approach growth? Yeah, for sure. And I think it was pretty much exactly the same thought pattern that you're just talking about. So I reached a point as a freelancer where I was like, okay, well, I feel like I've scaled to the maximum of my hourly rate, just given my skill set at the time. So the next questions that I had to ask myself were like, okay, well, what, what's next? And everyone talks the big S words, like you have to scale, you got to figure out some way to scale. And I wasn't super familiar with, um, this was back in like 2015. So I wasn't super familiar with like info products and really how they worked and stuff like that. But I was diving into a lot of, um, a lot more client work that was focused around um, clients who wanted to build their online programs. And it was sort of the start of me diving into that world. So, uh, so I realized to be able to scale, I was like, okay, let's really double down on like building online programs for people. And, uh, to be able to charge a bit more money because there's a bit more complexity to that. So there is the level of increasing your skill set if you're going to ask for more money, which I knew I had to do, and then also increasing the team. Uh, so I started with more developers and then eventually got um, like a social media manager and assistants and things like that. So I thought I was doing everything right, like scaling the right way. You have to grow. Like, why else are you in this? Like, so you kind of get pressure from, from all around in that aspect. And I really thought I was doing the right thing, but then realized, um, so I got like an office and we were going to work every day, but then I just realized I was like, oh, I've literally just built myself into the job that I didn't want, which was like a nine to five. And to be honest, like maybe, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. rather office job. Um, and once you start hiring more people, margins become thin uh, because you're now you're dealing with salaries and benefits and days off and all that kind of stuff too. And then your role becomes not necessarily uh, a developer anymore, but it becomes not only a project manager, but like a people manager. And I think that's where I really decide, started to decide that it really wasn't wasn't what I thought it was going to be because as much as I loved the people that worked for me and they did a, such an awesome job, your job becomes like a full-time firefighter. Like you just are there. It's super stressful. You're constantly dealing with emergencies because you're dealing with stuff that nobody else uh, can deal with by the time it comes to you. So given the stress of it, we I got through all of the projects um, that we were currently working on and then started to slowly phase them, phase them down. And now I'm back to like, so it's me, one developer and assistant, and we can take on like, um, really cool projects and I can still collaborate with people. So I didn't scale back down to zero, but just a message out there that don't feel like you have to just like grow to an agency of like 200 people. It's not always the goal. And I know you guys have diversified in a lot of other ways. Like I'm not, I haven't gone into the info product arena. I know a lot of my clients have, so I've supported them in that way. But I'm curious for you guys, like how you've diversified from being like a one man or one woman show uh, in those sort of aspects as well. Yeah, Eric, how about you? I know you've grown and hit subscribe and taken a slightly different approach than the standard collect margins on developer time uh, agency route. Uh, how about you? How have you scaled and grown? And um, 
I've actually solved this problem multiple times in different ways, basically. Um, when I first went off on my own doing like freelance, I did a mix of freelance app dev and kind of a staff Augie way um, where I was just kind of plugging in time part-time or, you know, occasionally bouts of full-time and I would write code. And then I would also do this um, kind of developer training in the enterprise. And without going into all the gory details of that evolution, I kind of quickly realized as I was doing developer training, like teaching people how to do TDD, hey, I can command more for training than I can for app dev. And as I was there, because I had management experience and had eventually um, exited the corporate world as a CIO, people started to a lot of times pick my brain about management-oriented concerns. And so uh, I commanded a higher hourly rate by starting to be a management consultant instead of a trainer or application developer. So what I'm getting at is the first evolution of my solving of this problem was to realize that the less commodified what I was doing was, the higher my hourly rate would go. And so then I was doing things $200 plus an hour, but there's even a cap with that. Um, so I started to get real specialized in that type of management consulting where I would size up application portfolios using static analysis and um, help CIOs, people like that, make decisions about code bases. And then I started to get inquiries for things like expert witness testimony about code quality and some of those. Like I think my last like hourly rate was 300 bucks an hour, but what I figured out there, I guess, uh, solution to growth number two was this is the wrong kind of pricing model. I started to flat price these code base assessments for, you know, 20, 30 K. And um, I could do those at first in two weeks. And then it started to go down to a week and then a few days. And so now I had realized that there was this thing that I was doing where I could realize more and more profitability uh, by not selling things by the hour, all of this still in solo consultant mode. And then of course, I just abandoned all of that and started a marketing business. I mean, it was, it was a weird choice, but um, so basically as a sideline, all of this was hundred percent travel and kind of in a decision with my wife, um, we partnered up to start this business doing blog content. And we both kind of viewed it as maybe a sideline, maybe something she would eventually run. It in turn blew up um, in a way that I never anticipated. Now that's our full time. And that business is a product I service business, which is yet a different way to solve kind of the where do you go from individual. So my path has been sort of circuitous, but hit subscribe in particular. The idea is you start selling um, product I services like blog posts, blog content, done for you blogging. And what happens then is um, you can pay out um, contractors at a flat rate because it's a predictable deliverable and you can start to reason a lot about margin and profitability. Um, and that's a nice way to grow without a lot of risk. And it also lets you do something that I found to be crucial, which unlike if you're billing things by the hour or even in solo mode, you can start to build a business where you could backfill yourself and you become a shareholder of the business and not as much of an operator if you're so inclined. So it's a way to kind of, um, build a retirement strategy almost if you're so inclined. Um, so that's been my journey. Hit subscribe is now. Um, uh, I don't do, I've backfilled myself over and over again. I am furiously at the moment trying to backfill the last few things I do, which is sales and account strategy. Um, so it isn't the agency path of like, I, I don't um, go write contracts of like, hey, we're going to do miscellaneous marketing stuff for you. And then I play the game of like trying not to have a bench, but um you know, trying to work that balance of having the right amount of people for the right amount of project and earning margin above their salary and all like we don't, that wouldn't be for me. We don't do that. But this is another way to kind of build something without having a SaaS or a uh, specific um, passive deliverable like product as service is a nice way to go this route. Nice. I like that a ton. So uh, uh, just reflecting it back, it sounds like at first, it was focused on a more expensive problem or a more specialist problem, so you're not just getting commoditized. And then it switched to, well, instead of selling something that in any way relates to time, let's focus on selling a deliverable, an outcome for the client. And then as you stack experience, you stack reputation, you stack authority, raise the prices there, increase your margin, and progressively remove yourself from the business. So it's running on SOPs over there. And you're collecting some profit over here. Yeah, really. That's about the gist of it. It was kind of a series of realizations, which is the less commodity the labor I'm doing, the higher rate I can um, command. But in a sense, I mean, some people might argue with this, but I, I might in retrospect argue that if you're billing by the hour, 
to some extent, however specialized that is, it's still kind of commodified because somebody else could come around and say, I'm a better whatever than you are. I'm a better management consultant than you. So pay me instead or, or what have you. Uh, so it was that realization that I could sort of like be a little more specialized in what I was doing. And then to say like, hey, if I decouple time for money altogether, I can start to capitalize on efficiency. And then I can scale that kind of thing into a whole business. That's beautiful. How about for you, Meg? I, uh, it's funny where I am in my journey. I might be more uh, where our listeners are, which is... Um, I haven't uh, like I'm I'm I think looking down the road for for growth like you know and, and trying to do things to position myself for growth uh but I haven't really grown uh the business in any sense that would be um you know in terms of uh yeah what you would think of for business growth um so yeah like I'm I'm I I guess I'm sort of coming from the perspective of our listeners possibly um, one thing, like the one thing I did do to position myself for growth and like, it's been a slow journey, like, you know, sort of coming down from that hourly rate to creating a productized service that now has become my entire business focus. And I guess the next steps, um, look, you know, I, I'm starting to take steps to sort of systematize things so that can become more profitable and also look at how, you know, to be able to, um, dedicate the attention needed to the areas of the business that are not just client work to be able to uh, facilitate that growth. So, um, yeah. For me, it's been a similar focus on more leveraged productized services. I've always wanted to move as far away from, you know, standard hourly uh, billing or development or projects as I can. And productized services for me have always been a nice way just to package expertise in a way that really connects with the outcome or the deliverable or the change a client is looking to see. And then as I get more experience there, start to bring in contractors to execute on parts of it. I've never gotten to the point of handing off the entirety of fulfillment or delivery. But uh, uh, you know, pricing myself higher, finding optimizational efficiencies, and just making it a little more efficient to deliver. It definitely does lead to a bit of, hey, I've built myself a well-paying, not stressful job. But in my future, I could see a lot of the benefit to starting to outsource a little more of the implementation, a little more of the delivery, just so it's a little less of a job and more, oh, hey, this is generating money, even if it's just a little money, while I'm not involved in all of the execution, all of the fulfillment. Yeah, like I I, I, I don't think I'm looking, you know, and I don't think I, I see a path towards building a business that kind of runs a lot without me. But I certainly, it would certainly would be nice to be able to build a business that if I stepped away for a little, you know, like that, that's a little bit easier to perhaps uh, um, adjust when a variance hits or, you know, to be able to step away for, for a minute without, <laughs> and, and some that, that not, not completely turning off the flow of, um, of uh, revenue. So I think we, we all highlighted a number of really interesting paths here, just running through them quickly. One option, if you want to grow and you can't just keep on raising your rate, is growing as that business, you know, launching a productized service, following the bootstrapper path. Another path is trying to just increase profitability as a solo operator. Hey, I'm making, you know, $1,000 on this. How do I make $1,200? How do I make $1,500? And get to the point where you don't need as many clients or as many projects. One path that we didn't touch on in depth yet is growing lifestyle as a solo. And I think that'd be an interesting one to rabbit hole on a bit since we each have a I think a passion for going off the beaten path and saying, oh, hey, I want a cool life. I want to enjoy my life. How do I have my business serve that goal? Eric, I know you just got back from a, a bit of a multi-month trip, I think. So how have you started, or I guess over time, how have you used the business to grow your lifestyle? Well, um, I first figured out, I think when I was doing... 100% travel management consulting, I want to say. I read the four-hour work week and I had this realization, which is like, it doesn't really matter which airport I fly out of at the beginning of each week. I could do this from anywhere. So my wife and I kind of like in the beginning, we started to travel different places, experiment a little with slow travel. And I think we we were based in Chicago at the time and we went and spent like four months living near New Orleans and I was still doing the same thing. So that meant I was spending weekends near New Orleans, but that was like a first initial step. And everything that I did from there was sort of um, with the idea in mind that I would want to do a lot of 
extended travel, including founding the um, the business Hit Subscribe that we did, which from the get go has been a pure remote business that can be run from anywhere. Um, so basically, I built business operations with this idea that a thing I would want to hold hold constant is that home base uh, shouldn't matter in terms of the business. And then also working towards like reduced travel. Like I, I wanted to get off the road for work. I didn't want to be dressing up in khakis and going into enterprise manufacturing businesses five days a week and slowly work towards that. Um, I will say that from a lifestyle perspective, like if you have a, if you're a solopreneur, you have a solo practice, you can do that same thing and probably way more than I've done, which is it. There was a moment where we kind of leaned into building a business instead of um, like building a business to scale instead of lifestyle. And I remember that moment because it was a conscious decision. When we first started hit subscribe, my wife was editing the blog post and doing graphics. I was writing the blog post and we got to a point where I could, we could earn enough money doing that to sustain ourselves. And, uh, you know, I'd spend two or three days a week writing blog posts and I was like, wow, this is a pretty good deal. We can, live working two or three days a week. I could sure do this over the long haul. We eventually debated back and forth, like, how should we play this? What should we do? And we decided to really hit the gas with the idea of creating equity in a business over the long haul that would mean early retirement, fingers crossed, as opposed to long haul lifestyle. And I think for me, that was because I don't know that I had seen 35 years or whatever in front of me in my career of marketing. That was just you know, not my greatest source of joy. So, um, but the interesting, I, I think thing there is you can have a lifestyle business and you can optimize it to suit a lifestyle that you choose. And then you can even do things like, well, okay, I'm working five days a week. My goal is to work four and then three, you can tune your business. And I would call it a form of growth to be able to earn more and sustain what you want to do with less and less effort. I think that's an excellent growth pattern. I didn't happen to choose it, but it doesn't mean that if I roll re-rolled my life, I might not choose it. Like it's a very good one. Yeah. What you described there is what I often aim for when it comes to growth in a 2017 to 2018, I hit the point where I was like, Oh, Hey, you know, business is going well. I'm just going to, I'm not going to work Fridays anymore. And you know, we'll shift the burden of the work Monday through Thursday, scale down some projects, scale up some rates, just to cover all the bases. And then later in 2018, I was able to shift down to a three-day work week. And I'm up to a five-day work week now, but I just want to harp on that as like a really powerful path, especially if you're saying, hey, I enjoy the work I'm doing. I don't necessarily want to grow a huge team yet, but being able to take that three-day weekend or always go camping somewhere cool on the weekend because, oh, I've got three or four days, that really is such a huge payoff, whether it's just emotionally or physically or mentally being able to say, oh, my business is working for me and it's paying off such that I could do these ludicrous, crazy hobbies. I could go to Burning Man for three weeks. I could go camping every weekend and the business keeps on chugging along. I think it's a great path. If I may, I want to point something out about that because I think that something crucial, if you're um, freelancing and you're working you know, 35 billable hours a week or whatever, it might sound to you like what we're talking about is that you go down to what is that 24 billable hours a week. And then somebody would look at you almost as a part-timer. You're not earning the same kind of revenue or whatever, but make no mistake. If you are able with your business to go from working five days a week to working three days a week and produce similar revenue and have a better lifestyle, what you have done is realized remarkable efficiency that is both marketable and impressive. So in doing that, you're still, even if you want teeing yourself up for further growth because you've become more efficient. You can do the same amount of revenue in only three days a week. If you later decide to scale it back up to five, you'll do more revenue. So don't think of it as like some kind of partial retirement. You are getting more efficient. It is legitimately a way of growing your business. Beautiful clarification. Thank you. Mark, how about yourself? Uh, I guess, how has growing lifestyle intersected with business for you over time? Yeah, I think that's actually sort of when I started to grow into an agency and had office and employees and all that kind of stuff. I think that's when it sort of gave me the realization of that I was uh, I was living up to something that I thought was expected of me, but also freedom-wise painting myself into a corner. So I think that's when I was like, no, I'm too claustrophobic, must scale down. Uh, so that's when I started to to scale back on scale back on client work. Uh, the interesting that thing now is I'm actually percentage-wise more profitable now being smaller. Um, 
And it's funny because there was a couple of people, I'm sort of going off on a tangent now, but there's a couple of people that I spoke to that have grown, um, like my friend's husband, uh, my friend and her husband both have their own companies and they've grown to a point of having like 70, 80 employees beneath them. And both of them had said, they're like, there's this weird spot between like eight to 12 people in your agency where like you're working so much, but apparently they've both experienced this hump after like 15 people. Now you have enough people to manage the other people and things start to flow a little bit, a little bit smoother in their experience. Of course it's anecdotal. So it's going to change for, for everyone. So I kind of had to make the decision, like, do I keep going to get to that like hundred employee level? And my heart just wasn't in it. And growing to that going to that level of having an agency like 100 people, like you really have to love it and you have to be super into it to to put up with all the all the stuff that comes along with it. Um, so when I scaled down, lifestyle was like a big factor in that. So it's like, okay, feeling really burnt out and to scale down and sort of take on the new adventure, which was uh, like building up the van. So of course, in true fashion, just really going from one extreme to the other, which is kind of just pretty much, I mean, I guess my personality summed up in a lot of ways. So uh, I was like, no, I got to get out of here. And I was feeling claustrophobic. So I got the van um, and the stat, I don't know what the status will be when this airs, but the status right now is that it's um, all the electrical is done. So there's like a few other things that I have to do, but it's very close. Uh, so, I mean, it's drivable. I could ultimately just take it anywhere at any time anyways, but to be able to have, uh, like independent power is like a whole other, whole other level. So that's become important to me, the freedom to just get up and go and go anywhere. And there's also, I think when we talk about lifestyle, there's a lot of components. So there's definitely business components to be able to like fit your business into the lifestyle that you want, which first of all is like we talked about, like how many how many hours, like what's your time investment in the company? Also, the other thing that was huge, which opening up my uh, opening up my sort of schedule to make more to make more room for the things that I wanted to do is boundaries. And I think boundaries with clients was probably one of the biggest changes uh, that I made too. Uh, and I talked to some other people, and I'm curious. I know we had the we had sort of another conversation. Uh, in a podcast, I think with Kai and Ruben about this as well, like client communication, where people allow their clients to like text them at all hours of the day and night. And it's like, no, nobody gets my phone number unless we're in launch week. And that's it. Um, there's nothing that urgent. Nobody's going to die. I'm not a surgeon. So uh, so we handle everything with uh, within regular business hours. And it's about training your clients to know how available you are to them. Um, once you've gone to a certain point, it's hard to go back, but you but you can, and you can retrain them. So I would say uh, I've been able to create the lifestyle that I want, or at least start to, by um, scaling back, which is sort of unintuitive to some people, uh, to put setting really firm boundaries with clients as to when I'm available and when I'm not. And I think the last thing is diversifying my income a bit more. So taking the money that's been profitable and reinvesting it in other ways that are also going to build equity over time. So I have like real estate investments and I've got um, like cash investments and stock market and stuff like that as well too. So having those different avenues that are naturally going to build equity over time because we, and I know Eric, you touched on this as well, like we don't have a retirement plan if we're self-employed. We don't have a pension. So to be able to start to plan for that, really putting away um, and reinvesting strategically into, into things that will ultimately become uh, equity in the future, if you, should you need to cash them in. So that's my lifestyle design. Everything could change in a year. Who knows? So... <laughs> What, what put me in mind as you were talking was like being really clear about what you want, uh, what your goals are is important. Um, and sometimes like, like you just sort of touched on there, like, you know, sometimes it takes experience. So like, you know, we don't know what we don't know until we, until we experience it, but having at least an idea of, um, uh, 
goal, what your goal is for your business. Is it to fund, you know, is it so you can have a great lifestyle? Are you looking to, you know, retire early? Like what does, what does that look like now for you probably is a good thing to um, think on and actually define before going after a growth goal is, is sort of what I'm hearing from. No, I completely agree with that. And it's just so easy to, you know, inadvertently accidentally pick up on someone else's growth goal in the Twitter sphere or emails or whatever and feel like, oh, I mean, it's, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. They're aiming to build a hundred person agency and retire at 35 to a tropical island. Holy crap, I'm 33. I better get on it if I'm going to hit that goal. But that's just picking up somebody else's instead of saying or asking the self, okay, what do I want here? And maybe it's van life. Maybe it's, I, you know, cash flowing from the business and don't have to really be involved day to day. Maybe it's, hey, I love doing this and I want to, you know, be doing some form of this, some high value leveraged form of it until the day I retire or die because this really is passion passion forming for me. But if you just hook onto somebody else's goal and pick it up as your own, A, it's confusing because you don't have the same inputs and B, it might not really be what you want. And then you get three hours, three years into it and you're like, oh shit, this sucks. This is not what I want. How do I extricate myself from this. I'm trapped in here now. Mm-hmm. And definitely reinforcing that it that like it's okay to change your mind. I don't know at what point in time like changing your mind was became so frowned upon. Like people were people are people are told that they're uh like wishy-washy and stuff like that. But I think that I don't know. Some of my best decisions have been just like me changing my mind as as a like split second decision just cuz I know that it's the right thing to do for sure. Well, again, sometimes it's just having the experience to be able to, like, it was the right thing to do at the time. And then it's okay. We've got more information. This is no longer what I want to, I, I'm, I'm looking to go this way now. That's, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Make up curious. How about for yourself? How do you see as you grow uh, uh, your focus on testimonials and case studies and social proof consulting, how do you want the business to help further your lifestyle or set you up for your ideal work week? Yeah. I think, um, yeah, there's a few factors and and this is definitely something I'm going to be, um, fleshing out more over the lovely upcoming, (laughs) um, break, (laughs) holiday break, but, uh, um, a lot of similar things that what folks are saying here, uh, certainly creating a little bit more space and time, uh, in the week, um, you know, uh, it's shorter work week appeals to me. Um, so does, um, just, um, being more profitable is, is always, you know, is a good goal as well. It's interesting sometimes when I see people, um, put out revenue numbers as goals and knowing that (laughs) that alone, yeah, but you also have to take into account expenses and how much money is it taking you to, to run things, you know? Um, so, um, um, yeah, just those, those are definitely goals, uh, that I, I'm sort of working towards. Um, I would say I would think more broadly, but you know, of course the great pause of 2020 is, you know, travel would have been in there <laughs> for, for next year. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be a thing yet, but yeah, m- enabling more travel has been a goal in the past. Uh, and, uh, that's just sort of been put on pause. <laughs> One interesting thing we each touched on in our responses so far is, you know, moving away from providing just a commoditized service where if we're selling the exact same pickaxes and shovels that our neighbor is, there's not going to be as much demand. It's going to be easier for folks to say, oh, I could get it cheaper across the street. Please lower your rates, which none of us ever want to do. So I'm curious how we each approach evolving our skill set, focusing on sort of that next more expensive problem or more specialized area or positioning so that we are able to command higher rates or better leverage our business. For me, it's been a focus on identifying new and different expensive problems with my audience over time. So one example I love pulling out is in 2014, I was very much a standard SEO consultant. And hey, I'll help you get backlinks, I'll help you rank higher. And I realized, well, a lot of the skills I'm using there are outreach. And I saw outreach marketing starting to come into play as more in demand and a more niche way to help folks achieve their SEO goals or traffic goals. And so I said, okay, let me move into this more specific positioning. I'll be an outreach consultant. From there, I moved into podcast outreach, getting even more narrow and more specialized. And I've since switched focus and moved on to other areas. But I think it's a great example of just doubling down on 
a small micro niche or a micro problem that is in more demand or more specialized or more painful for the client to command those higher rates and better leverage the business. Eric, for yourself, how have you uh, evolved hit subscribe skill set or your own skill set over time? Everything I've done over the years, I think of as, I mean, to borrow a term from my management consulting days, they love this in the enterprise, but climbing the value chain. Um, so if you start out doing something like uh, SEO stuff, like I'm, I'm going to build backlinks, you, you ask kind of, and I mean, this is a little simplistic for the sake of the example, but you ask, why is somebody doing this? Oh, well, you get backlinks um, in order to make your time to rank um, go down for new articles that you're writing. Well, okay, why do you want to do that? Uh, well, you're going to get more traffic to the site. Okay, why do you want that? And you just keep working your way up. And eventually what you discover is um, somewhere along the line, someone in the C-suite has a goal that really ties to like the bottom line of the business. So we want to do all of these things so that we can um, make lead acquisition more predictable and broader in scope for the business. So what, what somebody in the C-suite, a CMO or somebody is really trying to do is bring more business in through the front door. I mean, it's the simplest of examples. So for me, when I think about um, both paths that I took um, with management consulting, I started to, IT management consulting, um, look at like what was going on in enterprise IT departments, what people were doing. And I kind of worked my way up just through conversations and market research to see like one of the biggest pains was if you're the CIO of some program in the enterprise, like how do you know when to cut bait on a piece of software or how do you get your program back on the rails? And those are the decisions that get made. And then in their wake follows a $20 million program. So once you're having those types of conversations, sure, you could command a higher hourly rate, but what you can start to do is say things like, hey, um, if a fate, the fate of a $20 million program here hangs in the balance and I help you make a good decision, I figure that's worth about $100,000. And people say, yeah, sounds right. And then you can make these really, you know, when you work your way into the position where you're talking to people who are playing for really high stakes, you tend to get high trust engagements for high stakes. Um, so for me, it was really about uh, and I've done a similar thing with hit subscribe where at first, you know, we were, uh, the business evolved out of me writing blog posts in my hotel room at night. Cause I was bored for dev tools companies. And now the conversations I have are mostly with the CEOs of uh, series a Silicon Valley companies, things like that. And again, it's working your way up and having higher table stakes type discussions. So I don't know if it's so much of a skill set change for me, but it's really just to continually investigate and ask why, why do you want this? Why does your boss want this? And the more of that you figure out, um, I think the easier it becomes to switch your business focus from, I execute this miscellaneous series of tasks, but I need someone strategic to figure out why, like I do backlinks. Well, why? I don't know. I just do that, you know. So that's a lower value comparably commodity offering. If you start doing the market research and you start to understand your buyers, you can offer more outcome focused deliverables. That's where, you know, really not just the money is, but the leverage is. You can say, um, if I have $100,000 to play with to help this program CIO make a decision, that gives me a whole lot of runway to go hire people to like help with the books or whatever. Um, so I guess that's my take. It's not. For me, it wasn't as much about skills as it was about really working my way to understanding the needs of the people with the expensive problems. Nice. No, I like that a ton. I was about to say the exact same thing. Instead of leveling up the skill set, you're leveling up the problem you're focusing on or your understanding of that problem. And suddenly like, oh, my arm hurts. Uh, take some aspirin. Oh, my elbow hurts and I'm playing a tennis match tomorrow. Oh, I'm a specialist. Here's how I can help you. Here's a large check. Please help me. As you understand that problem in more detail, you know where the value is. You know where the money is. You know where to solve that pain. Very nice. Meg, how about yourself? Uh, uh, I guess on either side, leveling up the skills or leveling, leveling up the problem or the service you provide to address a problem. So for me, I... Uh the sort of path uh, I've sort of taken. I mean, I did start, I started the, my current iteration of my business just by offering um, one service, which was, uh, you know, doing uh, done for you testimonials. Um, and so I, as, uh, and there was like 
one side service along with all these other generalist communication services that I, you know, that I provided for largely two main clients. And then this was sort of something on the side. So that's, it was sort of, uh, I saw that as an opportunity to like, a, you know, like we had talked about, you know, sort of loving going up that valley chain. I found that as a way to define a problem and that as a way to kind of step away from this generalist contractor, subcontractor kind of position to actually having and growing a business. So um, the way I sort of, you know, I kind of grew that, not not a, by a whole lot, but I, I took opportunities that I was coming across uh, in talking with clients and potential clients for that business to to then grow like and, and sort of meet needs that they had. So, you know, when somebody approached me and said, do you do case studies? I'm like, no, but we can absolutely expand the service. You know, it's still within that social proof uh, and still within my niche. And it just was iterating on a service that I could deliver at a higher price point. And, uh, and, uh, and same thing with uh, another service that I did, like, you know, did for just churning and, and turning um, for feedback forms into, into a sort of like a survey testimonial engine, if you will, like where, so like all of this came out of just being com- starting to become known for, a special IT and then just starting having conversations with people and, and slowly offering more profitable or, or you know, and, and uh, other services that then allowed me to make that the entire focus of my business. So that's kind of, you know, that w- in a nutshell over three years, where I four years, how long have I been doing this now? <laughs> where I got to. <laughs> Nice. So I guess, uh, again, doubling down on what works and getting a little more specific in terms of what clients are looking for, what future clients might need and focusing on where I guess the expensive problem really is. I think that's it. Yeah. And, and like really nailing down a pro like certainly nailing down a process for that. Like, you know, as you, as you guys, I got more, um, you know, you have to take charge, you know, when you're going from a subcontractor type of role to, to a role where you're selling a service that's productized. So like taking charge of the process and, and really developing, processes for deliver like onboarding the clients and also uh, delivering the service and just uh, iterating on that. Nice. Mark, how about yourself? What does that evolution and growth look like? Yeah. So much like you guys, uh, always looking to add value. And I think as a developer, um, there's a few different ways you can go. So, uh, so I'm a developer and there's a lot of developers out there and there's a lot of developers that are better than me out there. So the question becomes like, how do you provide more value? How do you separate yourself? And I really think my, from listening to my clients, my competitive advantage is my customer service. So it tends to be a trend with developers to have really terrible customer service. So uh, I really double down on creating like an amazing experience um, by really getting into the shoes of of the client and being able to solve problems and being a good problem solver also comes, I mean, with your own personal life skills, but it comes with um, experience in the field as well too. So being intentional when you first start solving problems uh, as a developer or at any level, uh, really be intentional about solving those problems and reflect on the solutions that you came up with to be able to like as a muscle, really gross, like your sort of problem solving skill set. So I think my value comes from my customer service and ability to problem solve, which has mostly just come over time. And then ultimately raising, raising the value of projects, because now I'm seeing that, especially clients that I've grown with over time, I mean, they'll start off with making like, a couple thousand bucks in their online program, but all of a sudden, four years later, they're pulled, they're getting million dollar launches and still asking me for advice and strategy and input. And it's okay. Well, if we were able, if we were able to get this far, like this is a process that we can replicate for other people, and that's huge. So that's worth a lot. Um, so it's seeing value in the problems that you're able to solve, and then like replicating those solutions, basically at like a higher price tag. Nice. So that might look like uh, you do a launch for a client to use a marketing example for the first time. You have some SOPs, some processes, some understanding of like tooth to tail. This is what it takes. And then you're able to say, okay, I have some experience here. Let me bring that to another client and 
leverage the process, lever the experience, and again, almost bootstrapping style, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, gain more insight over what this process needs to look like and start developing it into more of a productized or repeatable service offering. Yeah, and to get sort of more tangible, uh, because I know we're talking a bit conceptually right now, but to get more a bit more tangible. So maybe it's an example of um, my last client saw a 30% increase on their sales page conversion after putting like a chat bot conversion in the bottom so they could answer all their questions immediately. So something like that's like, oh my God, that's, that, that is incredible to bring on to the next person. And then another client sees like a 10% increase from those, like, from like an upsell opportunity and the way that's phrased. Or there's another client that they have like, um, a back in stock notification for the Shopify store. And so now all of a sudden, every time they restock, they're completely sold out because all these people have signed up to be notified when it's back in stock. So there's so many things that it's like, oh, all of these start to, and you can start to see how all of these work together. So if they have a digital product and then a physical one, and then there's like upsells. So there's, if you can sort of connect the dots and interweave that knowledge and know where it's applicable in the market, I think that's there's a huge value in that for sure. As you describe it, I start to see elements of uh, that and how I've leveled up over time. Even with something like a podcast tour, the process I followed for the first one was <laughs> forged out of bone and blood and best guesses. But by the 10th one, I was like, oh, I found these tools. I found these tricks. I found these, you know, one little secret to get onto a podcast. And suddenly I'm able to leverage all of those and I'm able to get better results. It takes me less time and it's more valuable for the client. So I guess almost incrementally building the higher value offering, again, climbing that value chain and getting to a point where something that might have started off as more ad hoc, let's see if I can do it, turns into, oh no, I know, you know, two dozen tricks we could deploy here to help increase the conversions or get a better outcome. And now it's even more high value and we could charge more for it. Yeah, raising prices. It's <laughs> definitely something to do. Um, then that, that's a nice thing too. Is it, I found even you don't even have to change. Sometimes change like I've been able to raise the price for the service without changing it fundamentally. It's just the value starting to come from my expertise that I've been doing it for so long, and it's somebody like it's easy to trust. And you know that's yeah, I, I, just an interesting observation I've had from my own experiences. That I guess I, I always assumed I'd have to change the service or something like that. But like almost intrinsically, I'm adding more value to it just by being more experienced in it. And, and, and uh, so, yeah. One of my favorite things to almost snarkily say to people is every two or three testimonials you get, add 20% to your rate because they're just such a powerful piece of marketing proof that, oh no, I could deliver value. I've done it for more people. We're getting outcomes like this. And so as you add that social proof, whatever it might be, uh, you know, inch that rate up. Most people are looking at a service or whatever. And it's not like, oh, an SEO audit, that's worth $1,000 to me. No more, no less. But it's more like, eh, side space somewhere between, you know, eight and 1500 for it. And suddenly if you raise that price from 1000 to 1100 most folks still see it in that sweet spot. And suddenly it's like, oh, I'm making 10% more for doing the same work. Great. Where's the downside? And there often isn't one. Mm -hmm. I would also add too that there is value in speed, which can come like very contradictory with a lot of people who like aim out to first charge hourly too, because a lot of the times it's like, well, this is taking me less time, so I should charge less. But the difference in thinking that, and it, this is the case obviously for for flat rates and not hourly and all of that, but the difference is, is like your client's time is money. So the faster you can get to them, the more valuable that actually is, not less valuable. So that's a consideration mm -hmm. to keep in mind as well, too. As we move into wrapping up on this topic, any other closing thoughts come to mind or, uh, you know, pearls or diamonds of wisdom that we want to leave the listeners with as they start to grow, charge more, and see if they could provide more value? So for me, if I were a freelancer or when I was a freelancer doing software development, the thing that it probably would have helped me to hear in Grok at the time would be if you're out and you're selling, you know, freelance services of whatever sort for an hourly rate, and you're kind of wondering, um, what do I do? What's my career path? What's my business growth path? What I would recommend is figure out if you want to grow by owning and running an agency, or if you want to do something else that we've discussed here. 
because I feel like that is a key inflection point. If you decide that you want to grow an agency, you don't have to get away from the hourly charging model. You just have to turn it up to 11. You have to find people that will work below your bill rate. And then you have to try to raise your bill rate. And that's the name of the game. You're forever going to be trying to raise your rates while, I mean, not in a crappy way, but like depressing what you pay people. So you're looking to internalize being good at agency by getting better and better work out of more and more junior people with your own SOPs. And what you're really doing is selling hours of labor and getting a margin on it. So you're trying to charge as much as you can for hours and uh, pay as little as you can for hours. And that's going to be true whether there's just you or whether it's dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, even if you're a, you know, Accenture or PricewaterhouseCooper, that's still what you're doing. So if it's that, and if you want to be an hourly, you know, preside over an hourly or an hours vendor uh, agency, then that's a career path. If you want to do anything else um, that we've talked about, like building more leverage and having a lifestyle business where you work three days a week, if you want to, um, kind of build up your own efficiency and profitability and earn more take home. Uh, if you want to grow a product as service business, anything else, you have to start moving away from the hourly model and towards um, something that lets you become more efficient and make more money off of more efficiency. So all of that is just a really long way to say, if you don't quite know where to go or how to grow, the first thing I'd ask yourself is, you know, do you see a future where you own a progressively larger and larger agency? And if the answer to that is yes, hey, good news, you've got a, you know, a fairly straightforward task in front of you. Uh, if the answer to that is no, you know, then you've got these other decisions to maybe make. And, you know, like we've talked about, that might change as you go. Um, but I do think that's kind of the first thing to ask yourself, because if running and owning an agency doesn't sound super appealing to you, then you probably want to figure something else out, because that's the only real route in front of you if you've decided to grow and you're selling hours. Mm -hmm. I would second that. Um, my only final thoughts would be to make sure your goals are based on what you want. It's really easy to take on the, the desires and uh, uh, intention of the people around you, especially your parents. So um, it's your life, you know, just, uh, figure out what you want to do. Yeah. I'm just going to second what Mark said. You know, I, I think just taking an audit of even of, of what, what you're aiming for and then, then even thinking about why you're aiming for it, um, is a valuable exercise. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, and then like, if it's not, if it's, if it's disproportionately, if you think it's disproportionately coming from outside influences, maybe just dig into that a little bit more and think more about what, what you're aiming for and what, what you want your weeks to look like. Yeah. So it's hard enough to get what you want <laughs> when you, when you know what, what you want, let alone, let alone when you don't know. So you might as well stack the cards in your favor. Let's talk about picks for a couple minutes. Uh, I'm curious if folks brought some, you know, interesting resource or article or whatever it may be to share with the listeners uh, Eric, what's your pick for today? Um, I did not really come prepared, but based on the conversation and kind of the things I was saying there at the closing, I would uh, actually just recorded a podcast episode with him, but I'd, I'd suggest Jonathan Stark's website. Um, he talks a lot about the concept of pricing in general, value pricing and specifically, and uh, spoiler alert, he's not a fan of hourly billing. So if you're listening to this and thinking of like, how can you build a business and start to get leverage and profitability in that business, that's kind of his like whole charter with his site. So definitely worth signing up for his mailing list that he emails regularly and kind of diving down that rabbit hole. So that's my pick. Excellent pick. How about yourself, Mark? So right now I'm reading uh, Code of the Extraordinary Mind by uh, Vishen. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name because I'm going to mess it up. He's the uh, owner and founder of Mind Valley. Uh, I don't know if you guys, people out there are probably familiar with it. It's like, um, it's a site of courses and there's a lot of sort of entrepreneur courses and things like that on there as well. But the Code of the Extraordinary Mind basically goes into... Um, I think it's really appropriate for what we're talking about because it's kind of like how to build your ideal life. And it also goes into a lot of, uh, there's some stuff we haven't touched on with like uh, giving back. So after you've established sort of the life that you, the life that you really 
love, like what's the next step? And I think, I really think giving back uh, is one of those things as well too. So Code of the Extraordinary Mind, the author is the one that reads it on Audible. I don't like listening to books on Audible that the author doesn't doesn't read unless they're read by Will Wheaton because he also does a really good job. But uh, (laughs) uh, Code of the Extraordinary Mind, Vishen. And if you just Google that, you'll see his last name. Excellent. I've I've been a slight fan of Mind Valley for years now, not for any negative reasons, just because I never dive deep into them. But I am a fan of what they do, so I'm definitely going to check out Code of the Extraordinary Mind. Meg, how about yourself? Any uh, picks for today? Yeah, this isn't something that I've just gotten recently, but somebody just commented it today on a on another video call, on a video call that I was on. So um, uh, I'll, I'll suggest my uh, the blue snowball condenser mic uh, that I use uh, right now. I guess <laughs> um, um, just it's a really like as somebody who's not into a lot of tech stuff um, and and who will just go for the simplest option um, if you're looking for some uh, slightly better quality for your audio if you're just going if you're using um, uh, a mic that maybe isn't uh, yeah this one's super simple it's not very, you know I think it was around seventy dollars Canadian and uh, um, just really leveled up my my mic uh, game for so that I could come through a little clearer on on calls and, and the podcast episodes so um, yeah, that's all. Recommend that. Also, uh, with a boom stand, boy, did the quality go up once I got a boom stand, which is uh, took me a minute to figure out how to set it up. But <laughs> it's not the most intuitive thing to set up. But I'll put links to both of the ones that I've got, uh, and uh, um, yeah, in the in the panel in the uh, in the picks uh, section. Mine is a bit. Uh whenever I recommend something like this, it always feels against the grain because I'm about to recommend time tracking software, especially Noco Time by a friend of the show, you know, Amy Hoy, uh, nocotime.com. And for somebody that, you know, rallies against hourly billing, there's often a question of like, why are you recommending a time tracking piece of software, Kai? But the truth is, when you're looking to grow your business, when you're looking to increase value, when you're looking to, you know, launch or optimize a productized service, there's so much value in it for you, not for the client. Never show your time to the client, but for you to know, oh, you know, I charged a thousand dollars for the service. I thought it would take me six hours to deliver. Oh, let's look at the time tracker. Oh, it took me ten hours to deliver. Okay, what parts of this took longer? And suddenly you're able to look at your service and start optimizing your service and say, oh, this bit not super high value for the client takes me a ton of time. Let me chop that out for future uh, uh, instances of this service and just focus on the higher value, more easy to execute and deliver aspects of it. And truly, I've tried to, you know best guess this myself without a time tracker because I hate time trackers. And the truth is, unless you're honestly using a piece of software, a really great tool to track your time, you're just going to be making up numbers. So if you're looking to grow and optimize your services or what you're providing to the client over time, or just make sure you're focusing on the more valuable things in your business, start tracking your time under no circumstances. Share the time with your client. Again, I need to harp on that, but it's useful for you just to be able to look back and see, oh, This service took longer to deliver than I expected. This took less to deliver. How do I optimize it so more of my services take less time or are just more enjoyable? And the answer to that question starts with a time tracker. And once again, nocotime.com. It's what I've used for a couple of years. It's what I just renewed on an annual plan for. And it's a great piece of software. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Business of Freelancing. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell us what your uh, favorite bit of the episode was. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what we could do better on future episodes. See you next time on The Business of Freelancing.